I'm Chris, I'm the Soul Care Pastor, and I'm also uh, one of your elders here at the church. And hey, uh, welcome to the uh, first day of Holy Week. And, and with that, um, today being Palm Sunday, next week being Resurrection Sunday, we're actually gonna uh, take uh, these next two weeks and step out of our current sermon series in the uh, book of Philippians and step into the passion narrative in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, so this morning, uh, the, the central question before us is this. How can a holy, righteous God show his love to a rebellious, sinful people deserving only his condemnation? Let me ask it again. How does a holy, righteous God show his love to a rebellious, sinful people deserving only his condemnation? The answer, the cross. It's the cross. Uh, uh, this is the, the pinnacle of our Christian faith. It's why Easter is such a big deal around here to us uh, at Radiance. And scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. That's the demonstration of his love. And so that's why we celebrate Easter. Without the cross, by the way, there is no hope. Amen. We have none. We, we need a savior. We need a king. In fact, we need a savior king. And so today's gonna have a, a little bit like a Good Friday feel as we focus in and zoom in here on uh, the uh, burial and resurrection, or sorry, crucifixion and burial of Christ. Next week's resurrection. Uh, with that in mind, turn to Matthew chapter 21, please. Matthew chapter uh, 21. Uh, uh, today, if you're visiting with us, is a, a little bit different uh, Sunday in terms of our sermon. Uh, uh, we don't normally break it up like we're going to this morning, um, uh, but we're gonna have three movements of the sermon this morning and, and it'll slowly build and, and, and climax in the crucifixion and, and burial of, of Jesus uh, Christ. So let me uh, set the context just a little bit of Matthew chapter uh, 21 here. So Jesus, he, he knows his hour is coming. In fact, scripture says that he sets his, he fixes his eyes on uh, Jerusalem and he begins to make his way slowly to uh, the cross in Jerusalem. And as he's doing that, he's preparing his disciples for what's to come. And that brings us here to Matthew uh, chapter uh, 21. And this is the, the final week that's leading up to Jesus's death and his burial. So let's look together here at uh, verse one of Matthew chapter uh, 21. The word of the Lord says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, this is Jesus and his disciples and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus here uh, and his disciples come to this tiny village of, of Bethphage uh, on the Mount of Olives, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's Sunday. It, it's the beginning of the week leading up to Passover. And so many Jews from all over the region would be coming into the city of Jerusalem for the Passover a celebration. It was a big deal for them. 
And so Jesus sends two disciples into the village to find a donkey and a, and a colt. And he says, to, if anyone asks, say that the Lord needs them. Now, what I, I love here in this text about Matthew, uh, this is so characteristic of him in his gospel, is that he notes that what is taking place here is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. And he quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And what's interesting in, in Zechariah 9 is that the context there is that God's judgment on Israel's enemies and the salvation of his people through a king who comes humbly on a donkey, not a, a chariot, but on a donkey. And then the, Zechariah 9 goes on to say that the people will rejoice over the salvation of their king. Now watch what happens next here in Matthew 21 in verse 6. It says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks. Sorry, put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. See what's going on here is in this scene is, this, is what exactly what Zechariah, Zechariah 9 depicted happening. The large crowds welcoming Jesus. He's sitting humbly on a, on a donkey and they're laying out palm branches and their cloaks on the road before him. I mean, the whole scene is just one of a, a celebration and rejoicing. And the whole crowd is, is crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, the excitement is palpable. They were quoting uh, uh, Psalm 118, which is what Amanda read earlier here in the service. Hosanna means save, O Lord. It has this uh, force of hell to the king. Our king arrives. Our salvation is near. And so all of Jerusalem is stirred up by this excitement of Jesus's arrival. So what does he do next? You might ask yourself. Well, let's look here in verse 12. What does Jesus do here? And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So Jesus uh, goes into the temple. This is actually on Monday. Matthew's account does not record that, but a whole day passes. Jesus comes into the temple and it says that he overturns the money changing tables and drives out those who are selling and buying as though the temple is a marketplace. And Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11, saying that, that these people have turned his house into a den of robbers when it should be a place of prayer. 
Jesus is not here necessarily condemning the money changing or selling of the animals for the sacrifice in and of itself. What Jesus is condemning primarily here is where this is taking place, in the temple. And Jesus is having none of it. And instead of a quiet reverence and focused worship, there was filth, noise, and distraction. By the way, side note, that's why we offer free coffee here at Radiant. No need to turn tables over here, right folks? But there's actually more going on here than originally meets the eye. Let me give you some examples first. Uh, Jesus does not go to the palace to overthrow King Herod, nor does he go to the Roman government building and overthrow the Roman government. You see, that's exactly what you would expect a king to do who's coming for salvation and freedom of his people. But what does Jesus do instead? He goes to the temple, dare I say, the palace of God, and he cleanses it and he overthrows the religious leaders. Second observation here, Jesus calls the temple my house. And so by calling the temple his house, Jesus is basically equating himself with God. And if, if this house belongs to Jesus, then he certainly has the authority to do what he pleases in it. Here's a, a third, maybe less obvious at this point, observation. This depiction of the corrupted, distracted temple is a good picture of our own hearts that have been corrupted by sin. Our king here uh, physically cleans out the temple and it's his house. And that gives us a window into what is about to come when Jesus goes to the cross to cleanse our corrupted hearts from the filth of sin. And see what, what Jesus does here just ticks the religious leaders off. Says they were, they were indignant. They, they were angry, actually, to see Christ the King manifest the glory of the Lord through healing and being worshiped. Can you imagine? May that never be said about us here, being ticked off at the worship of the Lord. See, Jesus is not the King that they or even we were expecting. Instead of entering Jerusalem on a war horse and going to the palace and overthrowing Herod and the Romans, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, not on a chariot, but on a donkey. He goes to the, the palace, his palace, by the way, the temple, and overthrows the religious leaders. Jesus is certainly not the king that they or we expected. Our king arrives but he comes to destroy the spiritual forces of evil and cleanse our hearts so that we may worship him more fully. And so, just like the crowd on the road into Jerusalem, we cry, save us, O Lord, all hell, the king. Several days pass after Jesus cleanses the temple uh, the tension is, is mounting. Uh, things are escalating as the religious leisures try to, to set Jesus up to take him out. 
But Jesus doesn't back down. He's not afraid of them. In fact, he shuts them up with the truth. And they just want to kill him for it. But they had to wait. They had to wait until uh, Jesus was not in the, in the temple, surrounded by a crowd, because they, they feared a riot would take place if they tried to arrest him. And so they waited, biding their time. And now it's Thursday evening. Just hours before his arrest, Jesus eats the Passover meal with his disciples and they sing a hymn together. And then they head on out to the Mount of Olives. And that's where we are going to pick up here in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them, the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In Gethsemane, which uh, uh, literally translated means olive press. It's like he's in the, the garden of crushing. How interesting. And Jesus feels the crushing agony of his, his coming death. So he prays that if it's the will of the Father to let the cup of the Father's wrath towards sin pass from him. We ought to feel the weight and the heaviness of Jesus' sorrow here, his distress over what is about to come. But there is no other way. The cross is the only way. So Jesus concludes, your will be done. Our king complies with the will of the father. And look what happens next as things start to pick up in in speed here in, in verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, that would be Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And so Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be 
so. A large uh, mob gathers and arrives at uh, Gethsemane, led by Judas the betrayer. See, this is the right time and place to arrest Jesus. It's late at night. The crowd is dispersed. They're at home sleeping, and it's just Jesus and his disciples. No match for a large crowd. But one of the, the, uh, Jesus' disciples draws a sword, and he, he cuts off the ear of one of the servants. But Jesus rebukes the violence. Again, we have to admit that our king is not the king that they or we expected. Jesus came to wage war of a different sort. By the way, Jesus says here, which is a stunning, that he, he need only appeal to the Father and he will send more than 12 legions of angels. That's like some 144,000 angels. Yeah, that would get the job done. But he doesn't. Why not? Because he says, Scripture would not be fulfilled and it must be so. And so here our king complies yet again, this time with the sinful will of the mob. He allows them to seize him. See, there, there is just something bigger going on here. And Jesus gets it. Well, let's continue here in the, in the narrative. Uh, skip down to verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So the, the mob takes Jesus to, to Caiaphas, the high priest, and the, the council, the Jewish council is there where they, they put Jesus on trial, trying to find a reason to kill him. Now understand this, they are not following the Mosaic law as it comes to and relates to trials. There's many examples that uh, we could look at here, but let me, just, let me just give you this one. They are breaking the ninth commandment which says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And they are bringing in false witnesses to speak lies about Jesus. They're all complicit with his sin, their sin, all of them. What's amazing here is it says, even with all of that, they still can't find a fault with Jesus. Hey church, brothers and sisters in Christ, May we strive for the character of Christ in such a way that no one would be able to find fault in us. May we seek to be above reproach like Jesus. But look how Jesus responds. Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. You see, he could have fought the charges. He could have won, that's for sure. But Jesus remained silent. Why? Why? Why doesn't he defend himself like you and I would? And this is where uh, knowing our, our Bibles is important because Isaiah 53 verse 7 says that the suffering servant would be oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And so silently, our king complies with the sinful will of the Jewish court. And see, it's not until uh, Jesus does speak, oh, oh, but just to affirm that he is the Christ, the Messiah, that the Jewish leaders then believe they have enough evidence, namely blasphemy, to bring against Jesus as capital punishment, to put him to death. So look what they do next here in chapter 27, verse one. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So in contempt, after mocking him and, and beating him and spitting on him, they, they lead him away to the Roman governor, Pilate. By the way, why wouldn't they just kill Jesus there? They certainly had the numbers. Well, here's the deal. They were not allowed under Roman law to execute anyone. That was reserved for the Romans. And the other problem that the Jewish leaders were facing is that they had to bring a charge against Jesus that was punishable by death according to Roman law and blasphemy of a God was not. So look at what they do next. This is so evil beyond imagine. Skip down to verse 11 of chapter 27. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Notice, he didn't say, did you blaspheme your God? He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. That's a really cool response. We don't have time to get into it here. But verse 12, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the, the governor was greatly amazed. You see, uh, apparently the Jewish leaders accused Jesus before Pilate of claiming to be king, which, of course, you and I know that's totally true. But you see, claiming to be king was potentially punishable by death under Roman law because it could represent a political challenge to Caesar. And astoundingly here again, when Jesus is falsely accused, he remains silent. And this amazed Pilate. So here's what he does. He, he goes and he offers up Barabbas, a notorious criminal, and offers to either set him free or to let Jesus go free. And guess what? The crowd chooses Barabbas and then demands that Jesus be crucified, even though uh, Pilate finds no fault in him. Now, I want to call our attention here to, to verses 24 through 20 uh, and 25 here. This is very interesting. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now get this, friends, get this. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Pilate dips his hands in water ceremoniously to say that he is innocent of this man's blood, which of course he's not. 
Nice try. But what's stunning, so can you imagine the crowd invoking a curse on themselves and on their children? Saying, we gladly take Jesus's blood on ourselves. Friends, that is just total depravity. What happened? Just five days ago, a crowd was waving palm branches and crying out to Jesus for salvation. And now here, the crowd is is waving their fingers at Jesus and crying out, crucify, crucify him. And before we think too highly of ourselves, we would do really well to acknowledge that we're not all that different from the crowd. So in verse 26 here, it says that when he, Pilate released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. They did just that. They severely beat him. They mock him and they spit on him and then he's led away to be crucified. And through it all, silently, our king complies this time with the sinful will of the Roman court. I want to mention this. The irony of this crowd crying out for Jesus' blood to be upon their heads is that his blood does cover them and us. All of those who place their their faith in Jesus, his, his blood covers their sins, bringing salvation and eternal life with him. But for all of those who do not place their faith in Jesus, his blood is on them as a curse leading to condemnation and eternal separation from him. Tell me friends, where are you at? Is it salvation or is it condemnation? The Lamb of God, our King, who takes away the sins of the world willingly, went to the cross. The soldiers and the crowd marched Jesus up the road to Calvary. And we pick up here in, in Matthew chapter. 27, verse 32. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Jesus would have been so physically beaten at this point that he couldn't possibly carry a heavy cross. And when they came to a a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and uh, kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and 
one on the left. The text here does not give us any great detail about the method of crucifixion. In fact, that's not really the point. Sometimes, though, we as, as preachers have a tendency to accidentally sensationalize the horrificness of, of the crucifixion. But anyone under Roman rule would have been familiar with it. D.A. Carson says that in the first century, it was as culturally unthinkable to make jokes about crucifixion as it would be today to make jokes about Auschwitz. It was horrible. Jesus was stripped of his clothes, naked. He was nailed to the cross and raised above the crowd. What I, I find even more unfathomable, if you can imagine, is the text goes on to say that those who passed by the scene and those standing at the scene all mocked and derided Jesus. They wagged their heads at him, just, just daring him to come down from the cross. It's like they were like, okay, if you really are who you say you are, come on, we dare you. We're ready to go toe to toe with you, man. Come on down from the cross, it's on. I wrestled with this text all week long because I so wanted to just have nothing but anger and contempt toward these people saying this to our savior. Beloved ones, it is an extreme, unmatched, divine act of grace that Jesus remained on the cross. I wonder if this was his, his last temptation to demonstrate his power by, by coming down from uh, the cross. But he ends up showing his divine power in a more glorious way, a salvific way. That's the better way. What amazing grace church what steadfast love and it's available for you and I Amen. look at uh, verse 45 here this text continues now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying Ali Ali lemma sabachthani that is, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and, and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see if whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus was crucified around 9 a.m. on Passover Friday. Then at 12 p.m. there was darkness over all the land until about 3 p.m. And the, this, this darkness communicates the, the seriousness of what is happening here. This is the darkest time in all redemptive history. 
And about 3 p.m., Jesus cries out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote of Psalm 22, verse one. Understand this, this is not a cry of doubt or of confusion. This is a cry of faith to the Father. And Jesus' anguish is both physical and spiritual here. It's agony from drinking the cup of God's wrath towards sin combined with the bearing of all sins for all time, all at once. And see, some thought he was uh, making an appeal to Elijah and wanted to see if Elijah showed up as if this was some sick, twisted game. Hey, wait, let's give him a drink. Let's see if Elijah shows up. We'll keep him alive long enough just to see. How cool would that be? This was no game. This was the greatest, most heinous murder of all time. All time. We would do well not to move too quickly through this moment, friends. because our own sins mean that we're complicit in it too. See here in verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus willingly gave up his life. They didn't take it from him. He gave it up. He yielded it. And our king dies on the cross. Look what happens next here in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Look at verse 54 now. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and, took, and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Immediately upon uh, Jesus's death here, the temple curtain, it says here in the text, was, was uh, uh, split from top to bottom. This was the, the temple curtain that separated the, the holy place from the holy of holies. And this little detail here is really important because it was torn from top to bottom. The, the curtain itself was massive. It was thick, it was high, and it was wide. Which means something divine had just taken place. Because if it, was, if it was ripped from the bottom up, then somebody could have claimed to have done it themselves. They could have said, look, see what I did? Look how strong I am, strongest man competition. It was, it was ripped from the top to the bottom, which by the way, signifies unfettered access to the manifest presence of God by faith. Amen. And by the way, that even happened before the resurrection. Think about that theologically this week. The earthquake also uh, shook the earth and split the rocks and that would have gotten a lot of people's attention. I'm sure many people were frightened by it. 
And the text goes on to say that Joseph of, of Arimathea, he, he petitions Pilate for Jesus's body. Pilate grants the body, and, and so Joseph uh, buries Jesus in a new tomb. And he rolls a, a great stone over the entrance of the tomb. And then on the next day, the text goes on to say that the religious leaders go before Pilate again, and they have another request, and they, they would like a, a Pilate to seal the tomb and also to, to give some guards to be out front to guard it. And it's because the religious leaders remembered and recalled what Jesus had said during his ministry that, hey, uh, when the Son of Man dies, he will rise on the third day. And so they were concerned that Jesus' disciples would sneak into the tomb and steal his body. And so Pilate grants this request and they seal the tomb with Jesus' body in it. Place guards in front of it. The murderous plot is complete. The man so many wanted dead is now dead and sealed in a tomb. I just imagine that Jesus's enemies must have just roared in victory. Evil triumphs. Death wins. Sin reigns. Humanity defeats God. Go us. So they thought. Earlier, I mentioned that uh, the central question before us today is this. How does a holy, righteous God show his love to a rebellious, sinful people deserving only his condemnation? Answer, the cross. Friends, the instrument of torture became an instrument of grace. And what Jesus' enemies and his followers didn't realize is that by dying, our king is winning. By, by dying, our king is defeating. By dying, our king is securing. And by dying, our king is healing. Pastor Chris, how do you know this? Without jumping ahead to, to Matthew chapter 28. Don't do that yet. That's next Sunday. Shame on you. Uh, how, do, how do we know this? Well, Jesus left us a big clue on the night before he died. So let's flip back a chapter to Matthew chapter 26 here. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, or sorry, 26. Matthew 26, 26. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. It's Thursday night. It's again on the eve of his, of his death. And they've just finished up the Passover meal together. And look what happens next. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Jesus here, before he even goes to the cross, he institutes what we call the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper places our gaze directly at Christ and the cross. It reminds us of what is his broken body and, and shed blood brought for us, redemption. And Jesus established this with his disciples then, and it carries on till now, until he returns with us here in the church. 
It's a reminder and proclamation together of Christ's death on the cross. So even though we're sitting here in this heaviness of, of, of Jesus' death and, and burial, we can have hope because of what the Lord's Supper means. And I think it would be appropriate for us that before we partake together, we spend a time in some silent reverence before our holy, awesome God. Friends, we, we all stand before the cross of Christ, every one of us. So tell me, what's your posture? What's your posture before the cross? Are you like one of the crowd, mocking Jesus? Or are you standing at the cross honoring Jesus? Are you at the, the cross with a wagging head or a worshipful heart? Are you at the cross barking or bowing? Panning or praising? Dismissing or declaring? Berating or believing? Let's take this next moment. Let's do some work before the Lord. Let's ask him to search and probe our hearts here this morning and then if you're in Christ, then we'll partake of communion here together in just a moment. Jesus was nailed to the cross, naked, humiliated, and yet the perfect Son of God, humble. His body was broken for you and I. on the cross still hanging there. His body was not the only thing that was broken. His blood was spilt. His blood was shed. And Jesus tells us that it was for the forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, scripture says. And so what? Guess what? Jesus' blood was shed for us so that by faith, in Christ alone, we might receive forgiveness of our sins. Hallelujah to Jesus for his blood. Thank you, Jesus, for your broken body. Thank you for your blood that was shed and poured out for us. We worship you. And we thank you and pray these things in Christ's name.